Hello, fellow time travelers. I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I'm Brooke. We're the Fiction Paradox, the only podcast dedicated to the BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world that we know of. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy, Enjoy your, your travels. Your travels. <laughs> <laughs> get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the Pinnacle American Editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Where you want, I would throw it. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the salty task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because they used salt in this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My name is Tony Witt, thank you for the polite laugh, and today we have an equally <laughs> salty... Yes, and today we have an equally salty three-person discussion panel, they just proved it, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me... There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving the PB 
PBS, but not a Target book, since we know you have so many of those. You keep them in an old priory guarded by Embryo Fendeline, just <laughs> to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. That one was surprisingly easy to come up with. <laughs> and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Deep Breath, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Kyle Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Woot patrons. Yeah, Whew. thank you. If we get two more Patreons, I'm probably going to die of asphyxiation trying to save them all. So someone who really doesn't like Tony, go ahead and become oh our patron. God. Yeah. The fatal run-on. <laughs> what you do is just edit out the second breath. <laughs> that, that would be cheating. That would be cheating. What a great problem to have. <laughs> I've done it before, but <laughs> not quite that way. Oh, Lord. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find the, us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with the third story of Tom Baker's fourth season, with Terrence Dick's novelization of Image of the Fendal. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Image of the Vendal, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Chris Boucher that aired from 10 77 to 11 published by Target Books in July 1979. As of this recording in July of 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 108 pages. Now, I said last time that The Invisible Enemy might be the second shortest Target book, but this one is actually one page shorter. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Given that it was written in the same year as the previous book, this may be down to Dick's working as efficiently as possible more than anything else, because, you know, deadlines and all of that. We established last time that he'd been writing a lot of books that particular year, so that might be it. Chris Boucher, who introduced the character of Leela in The Face of Evil, and then followed it with The Robots of Death, contributes his third and final script for the show here, before going on to be the script editor for a series called Blake's Seven, created by Terranation, created the Daleks, we'll have occasion to mention that show a couple more times in upcoming discussions, though thankfully not for a while. Speaking of script editors, this is also Robert Holmes's last script as script editor. The next book we read will be based on one of his scripts, but that story was actually made before this one. The production order on this season really is a bit of a mess. They did Invisible Enemy first, then they did Horror Fang Rock, then they did Sunmakers, and then they did this one. So it's kind of crazy, really. He was trailed while working on this story by incoming script editor Anthony Reed. Reed had actually worked as a producer for the BBC, so he originally refused the request by the head of serials to script edit, until he found out it was Doctor Who that he would be script editing. Apparently that was enough for him. <laughs> so that's good. He would go on to write The Horns of Nymon at the end of his tenure, which isn't exactly um, the best way to end it, as you'll see when we get to that story. And later, he would work on another show with Louise Jameson in it, the amazing paranormal series The Omega Factor, which I asked her about at Chicago TARDIS. I'm very much a fan of that show. 
This is the last truly Hinchcliffe Holmes-style gothic horror story to be produced for a long while, and of course it required some mandated changes from the higher-ups before it could be recorded, such as a shot showing Stahl bringing his gun up to his mouth. His shooting happens out of shot in the finished episode. All ages programming, everybody. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They apparently also had to change the Fendaline so they didn't look quite so phallic. (laughs) Then they would have to change the name to the Phallocene. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> when you two were Damn saying you. this name, and I hadn't seen it written down yet, I was parsing Findoll as F-I-N-N space D-O-L-L. Oh. I did not misparse it as P-H-A, but I guess I could see it, yeah. Phaldol? I can't quite land the joke, sorry. The phallic doll? That's Okay. That's fine. <laughs> That's not the only thing that doesn't quite land here. And unfortunately, I can't I can't show you the, the Fendal or the Fendaline. What I can do is send you the files, because for some reason, even though I can't display them, I can send them, which is nice, but it would have been nice just to show you and get your um, reactions to it at the start. But yeah, they had to put some ribbing on them, which (laughs) I think of as ribbed for her pleasure, (laughs) because that's how I do. Okay, so there's the one. The first file I sent you is the priestess of the Fendal herself, and the other one is the Fendaline, which had to be, you know, ribbed for her pleasure. (laughs) So you can see that one is fairly impressive, the other not quite so impressive, but there's a there's kind of an interesting reason why, which we'll get to in just a moment. The exteriors of the Priory were filmed at Mick Jagger's Stargrove's estate, which had last been used for the Seeds of Doom. K-9 only appears at the beginning and end of the story because of his last-minute inclusion as a companion and because Boucher was unfamiliar with him. The next story is the first full one we have with him in his new companion role. Also notable is that Thea is played by Wanda Ventham, who appeared in The Faceless Ones back in the Troughton era and would later appear in Sylvester McCoy's first story, Time in the Ronnie, the poor thing. (laughs) She also happens to be the mother of Benedict Cumberbatch, which I just learned an hour ago. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I honestly did not know that, and yet the family resemblance is there. He has her eyes. It's amazing. Uh, Another bit of trivia about her is that she was one of the runners-up for the girl who gets killed in Goldfinger by being painted gold. (laughs) So she was actually excited to be painted gold for this story. Though to achieve the effect of the eyes, as you can see in that one still that I sent you, she had to close her eyes and have the larger-than-normal Fendal priestess eyes painted onto her eyelids, which could not have been too much fun. It's like some drag queen makeup I've seen. It is, (laughs) and it's also great when you do it as cosplay. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. you have to have somebody lead you around because you can't see anything. Right. Otherwise, it's very creepy on screen, but it's very obviously big eyes painted on someone's eyelids. She was also asked by the director to wear a black wig for the part because he felt her credibility as a scientist would be diminished by her natural blonde hair. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it is 1977, but still, that's a little antediluvian even for the 70s. The Fendal would return, albeit not on Doctor Who. Big Finish has a Torchwood series of audios, and in 2019, they released Night of the Fendal with Eve Miles. I actually have not listened to that one, and I probably should. And one more significant bit of trivia. Two days after filming wrapped on this story, Tom Baker and Louise Jameson attended the first ever Doctor Who convention in London. If they had only known the beast that they would be unleashing. Hmm. Holy crap. Yes. So, Dalton, if you would not mind reading the back cover, because I actually don't have a copy of it here on the computers. I, I can probably do it in one breath. Okay. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to try, but it's it's very short. Yes, it is. The Fendal is death, said the doctor. How do you kill death itself? The ultra-modern technology of the time scanner combines with the ancient evil of fetch wood and brings to life a terror that has lain hidden 12 million years. The Doctor and Leela fight to destroy the Fendal, a recreated menace that threatens to devour all life in the galaxy. And that's it. And that's it. Yeah. That cover is incredible in its brevity. And just as the front cover is incredible in its ugliness, it was once <laughs> voted the ugliest cover of all the Target books. It is awful. But that drool is very lovingly rendered. It is... If that's what it's meant to be. My first impression was that the the Fendal itself is in sort of a Ralph and Sam Looney Tunes type relationship with the people at Menaces. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, clocks in, Menaces, etc. It's kind of fed up with the entire thing. Morning, Ralph. Morning, Sam. And the doctor is tired of this rat race altogether. He doesn't even want to clock in anymore to, to fight the monsters. They are, uh, neither one of them really have their heart in it anymore. Well, that probably was true of Tom Baker by that point. <laughs> <laughs> but, and it probably was true of the poor actor in the Fendeline costume as well, because those can have been fun. Well, so it's a surprise that the pictures you sent us are actually terrific compared to what I expected based on the descriptions and based on this cover. It is an impressive design, and they're not too terribly bad when they're in motion on screen, but Dix has to describe them as being very slow-moving because they are. There's no way to move quickly in those costumes at all. Yeah, I can imagine if they were done today, it would all be CGI, and they'd be very quick-moving, very serpentine, so... Absolutely. Less rubbery, maybe. I don't yeah. know, maybe more rubbery. <laughs> maybe. So we got Allison's first impression of the cover. What was your first impression of the story? Well, I, once again, uh, did an audiobook, and I, I was on the hoof most of the time. So I have uh, kind of brief notes, and I would have been looking forward to it significantly less had I seen this cover first, but I did not. <laughs> but it was another Louise Jameson one, and it was the best one in terms of narration that I've heard. Uh, she just knocked it out of the park, I felt like. And maybe it was just a frame of mind I was in, but I thought it was funny as hell. And I think a lot of it was her delivery of the lines, too. Mm. Did she do the accents when she was doing the local characters? Yes. Oh, <laughs> I, I have to get that audiobook then. <laughs> because that's brilliant. I mean, Louise Jameson is always brilliant, but I can just imagine her doing those accents and really doing them well. That's awesome. Dalton, what about <laughs> you? Your first impression? 
uh, kind of like Allison, the, the cover was not much of a, well, she just saw it, but her first impression that we just heard. Yeah, the cover is, is odd. The doctor looks extremely disgusted at the Fendal, and I'm kind of grossed out by it too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the images you sent us are a little more menacing. You know, they have these cobra-like flaps on the side, which appear to be down here that you can kind of tell what it is. But it, it here just looks like a sad slug. <laughs> But still, if it was you know, six feet tall, I, I don't suppose I would want to come up against it. I really enjoyed the first chapter, the way we get the perspective of the hiker and kind of that feeling of provoking that he has, you know, being in the forest and feeling like he's being followed. So just immediately from from the jump, this one had me kind of drawn in. Setting the scene, I think Terrence Six did a really good job making us feel the, the spooky atmosphere that we were supposed to be feeling. Not only from the Priory, but also kind of the the woods surrounding it. So yeah, I, I was set up to enjoy this. It is an impressive intro, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because that hiker, <laughs> I mean, he dies on screen, obviously, but you don't really get much of him you certainly don't get his internal thought process you don't know anything about him you certainly don't get the lines from the ancient mariner by coleridge mm-hmm. i love the fact that dix decides to quote that it's like oh yeah a little literary boner going on there <laughs> but it's incredibly effective and it sets the tone for the story really well as a reproduction of the moment i think we've all experienced at least once or twice in our lives and we're trying to get home and it's dark then we realize to our horror that we're in a terrence dicks prologue and we're not going to make it Mm. (laughs) it's interesting that he switched back and forth between the dune hiker and the lab from the very beginning because normally we would have the person who's going to die or people who are going to die in the prologue or first part of the first chapter and then we cut to the doctor and companion and then we cut to uh, the general location where our, our doomed prologue corpse breathes their last but you know with new characters and so it's a little bit different structure i really need to look again at episode one but i'm almost certain that that's the progression of scenes on screen so this one's very script to page but dix is doing just a little bit more with it and i think i suspect that's because chris boucher is giving him more to work with than he normally mm-hmm. has yeah, it definitely helped carry the tension. I mean, we all knew the hiker wasn't going to make it out. No. <laughs> no surprise, but how it's going to play out was the question. And yeah, switching between kind of his perspective and the, the lab just helped us to feel that creepiness a little bit longer instead of it just being over in a page and a half. Exactly. Now, of course, when you go back and you realize, oh, he's killed because the Fendal is manifesting itself because of the time scanner, and you think, well, wait a minute, how? Why? (laughs) This story, probably more than any other of the horror ones, doesn't really bear a lot of close examination. No, no, it does not. Mm -mm. Kind of falls apart a little bit, but on screen you're at least carried along by how just terrifying it really is on the page well i guess we'll get to that so where do we start apart from you know the body on page one (laughs) well let's just start with the obvious there's no canine nope i was fully expecting a canine story right away (laughs) with with all the the hype i was told to look forward to left him in the kennel on the tardis 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, you'll get but, enough of them soon enough. Trust me. But I, but I understand the explanation due to real world reasons why he's not in that, and it didn't actually really bother me. I, I enjoyed Leela in this one, and I was kind of glad to see her just back on her own again. Mm-hmm. And I kind of love the explanation given for it that <laughs> Dix doesn't think. Well, the Doctor will just take apart a new toy. He actually gives the Doctor a reason to take K-9 apart, which is to correct some fault. But I, I still suspect that he made up the fault just so he could take him apart and put him back together. Yeah. <laughs> because he's going to do so two more times, eventually. <laughs> well, I felt he didn't really tighten the bolts properly the first time. He reassembled them, so, you know. Probably. Got to go back and do a better job. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, oh, um... Just for um, just to let you know, they are playing their music really loud across the way. So if you can hear like ah, in the yes. background, that's what that's from. I thought it was the wailing of the findets, maybe findites, <laughs> findites, <laughs> findites. There we go. <laughs> Jesus, the embryo findites, no less. Yes, yeah, that's what you're hearing in the background, folks. It's not people dying because of the fendal. It's my dumbass neighbors across the way in the uh, crack house. I could definitely believe those are the whales of the dying, I've got to say. It probably is. Mm -hmm. It probably is. I hate those people. I really do. Anyway, so <laughs> back to <laughs> back to other hateful things. <laughs> yeah, so Kenai not being in this makes some sense. Yeah. I do kind of like that joke at the end where he's completely taken apart, but he still manages to nod somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd say this oh. is a strong Leela story, Dalton? Yeah, I, th I think it again allows us to, to see how she will react to different situations. And she's, again, always kind of learning, always kind of processing. She's still very aware of her surroundings. Yeah, so I, I think it's a strong Lula story. What's well, a very, well, once again, it, it seemed very funny, witty banter to me. Maybe I was just in the frame of mind where I really needed to laugh. But I, I thought that it had first-rate banter, and um, they managed to make it amusing that she always wants to kill, which is probably not a great thing to get used to, but it worked yeah. well within the story. <laughs> At one point, she's even proud of herself that she doesn't kill one of the security guards. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me, I'm learning. I didn't even try. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> which is just lovely. I, you can see some actual character development going on there, and yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that she is smart and curious, but does not automatically get social passive aggression. The bookend of, I like your outfit, where she she knows that the doctor has said something that she, she does not know the term sarcastic. She doesn't know the term passive aggression, but she knows she's been had in some way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I can relate to this. And weirdly enough, that's in there because of another real world concern. Apparently they had to give Leela a new costume for this one because the old leathers were just, you know, falling apart or whatever. And the hairstylist had somehow cut Louise Jameson's hair too short. So they had to give her a new bob, essentially. So Leela looks quite different in the story, and that line is in there specifically for that. But on the page, it works pretty well because it's the Doctor's clever gambit to <laughs> to give her a compliment, and she doesn't know how to take it, which is very <laughs> Leela, come to think of it. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just another good moment between them. Mm-hmm. 
I misread it. I, I thought it was like, you say something kind of snarky to a, or insulting to a person. I say, what did you say? And you respond, I said, I like your hair. Um, so <laughs> I, <laughs> that's how I read it. <laughs> oh, I, I, I think it's a little of column A, a little column B. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, through most of the story, they, they've been kind of sniping at each other. Leela talking about how the Doctor doesn't understand the way his ship works, and he's defending himself, and then it breaks. Yes. Or at least they, they get pulled into the, you know, wherever. But in he's defensive, there's, there's a bunch of different moments. So that was just another one that was kind of like them still jabbing at each other. And I don't know, none of it ever really comes across as uh, necessarily in bad spirits to me. No. Yeah, I, I enjoy that he's so indignant that Leela says he can't control the TARDIS as he loses control of the TARDIS. <laughs> yes. um, and also yeah. that she is long-term correct that the TARDIS has a sort of consciousness. Oh, yeah. I, I say long-term, they actually discuss it briefly there. Yeah. Yeah. This is the story where they say something about the the TARDIS responding to her primitive thought patterns, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another instance of the doctor uh, seeming to pay her a compliment. And it's not actually a compliment because <laughs> they've got a very lovely Bickerson's type of relationship by now. And it really does reflect the actor's own very tense relationship as as louise jameson put it we use that tension for the performances and it really shows here for sure (laughs) that and this story is very much in leela's wheelhouse isn't it you've got the collision of the old ways and the new ways Mm -hmm. science is really not doing itself or the world any favors in the story. As a matter of fact, it almost destroys the world. Whereas the old ways, throwing rock salt at it (laughs) actually (laughs) seems to be a good thing. And it's the sort of thing that probably Leela Shaman would have suggested, and she's right on board with it. But I thought Leela was like newly atheist teen in the previous novels. You know, it's better to believe in science. Not newly atheist teen, but... I actually expected her to make more of a declaration um, or draw more of a conclusion in this one because she understood right away, oh, you know, the old ways and your older religions, etc. But she didn't say anything snarky no. about religion and science. And she didn't say, oh, see, my ancestors were right. I, I thought she might give us a progress report on the state of her opinions <laughs> on religion and science. Well, that would necessitate the doctor who actually has strong developing characterization (laughs) and as we've established it all depends on who's writing the story i suspect terence dix is more interested in developing leela that way himself because that's his script and then the last story it was barely touched upon her ideas of science whereas this one yeah you you think that she would make some sort of declaration about it but no she's perfectly fine with the old ways even though this story trucks in so many stereotypes about the old ways it is if you're a, if you're a self-respecting god. wiccan you probably would hate this story because like oh god really? it was a, a, a low blow to refer to the two villagers as being inbred i thought oh just yeah. a bit yeah but the whole thing with the the pentagram being part of the the skull yeah like what yeah <laughs> yeah we got another one of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you, you have to wonder whether life on Earth would ever have evolved at all, had it not been for the Fendal. Oh, that rhymed. 
or for the demons and Azal back in the Pertwee era. It right. seems like we have all been used and abused by these aliens, but it's a good thing they used and abused us because otherwise we wouldn't be here. Man, you should not go into family counseling, I think. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Just as well you were beaten by that relative. Look how great you turned out, I suppose. Well, no. <laughs> well, yeah. No, no, actually, I, I, I'm being a smart mouth, but it, it does bring up a, a relevant distinction between the sum of your experiences create the person that you are, including some quite difficult, even traumatic experiences, which is not the same thing as being grateful that they happened. Yeah. And this is yeah. more along the lines of aliens directly influencing our evolution to their own ends, which is something that Doctor Who did before in The Demons. It's going to do it again in less than two seasons' time in a very brilliant story written by Douglas Adams. It's a trope, but yeah, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for these <laughs> meddling aliens, those annoying aliens or <laughs> Seatsura. Yeah. So there is that. How how well did that fit together for you, finding out that not only was this truly something that spawned our ideas of death and evil and all of that in human culture, but also is so terrifying that it's part of Time Lord mythology as well? I think conceptually it was interesting, but given the amount of space that Terrence was allowed to describe it, it feels very much glossed over. Yeah, and that's true in the script as well. There's not much there. I thought it worked well as yeah. sort of gothic atmosphere, but I didn't spend a lot of time examining the mechanics of it. Yeah, the doctor just drops into the story, oh my god, it's the Fendal. This is from Gallifreyan mythology, without even saying Gallifrey ever. And yeah. the, the Time Lords did something criminal. They locked it in a time loop so that nobody could ever know about it because it was just that bad. And that's about it. <laughs> that's all we get of it, which is very tantalizing. But many people have said that that trip back in time in the third episode to try to check out the fifth planet and then coming straight back seems like a way of just padding the script out yeah it definitely reminded me some of kind of what happened with the alien prequels mm. where it's like we've built up the aliens and the architects and the space jockey and all that but we don't really have a backstory to them and here we are you know 20 plus years later and now there's been what two prequel films <laughs> yes. that are kind of trying to explain things retroactively to fit into something yeah so i was i was feeling that a little bit and yeah it's like it was it was interesting but there could be like two or three other stories that <laughs> really flesh it out and give us more of an idea of what the hell actually was going on yeah it feels very tacked on and it seems like it doesn't even need to be there that this could just be a legend that the doctor heard about in his travels it doesn't have to have anything to do with the time loads whatsoever but they have to flesh episode three out or else they'll just have a three-part story and we can't have that oh heavens no <laughs> not until 1988 anyway <sighs> otherwise <laughs> what else to say about this how about the uh secondary characters because there are a lot of them it's a chris boucher script so there are plenty of secondary characters i didn't see it coming that styles was going to be the occult mastermind who gathered the team yeah the team that would end him yeah it turns out it does come from out of nowhere, doesn't it? I, I, I thought it worked. 
Okay. I, I was not able to keep up with all of the secondary characters. They were mostly there to become larvae anyway. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, well, we think that Fandal himself is going to be the person who assembled our doom rather than Styles. Oh, you misgendered the big bad. <laughs> no, Fandal, uh, Fandal oh, whose Fendelman. house we're in. Yes. Fandalman. Yes, yeah, sorry, Fandelman. Sorry. Yeah, Fandelman yeah. was his awesome, awesome, awesome uh, cavernous kitchen. I like that they cook for, <laughs> for security reasons. They cook for themselves, except when the, the village witch makes dinner. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> It's it's such a bizarre setup, isn't it? Well, then they, they say she lives on the property. I'm like, she won't make two or three meals a day. She's already there. <laughs> right. Well, she's got to cook for herself, after all. And even an old witch has to eat. And she's got Jack to take care of, apparently. But, yeah, so you've got this local coven in a town called Fetchborough. So there's obviously plenty of ghosts, because that's what a fetch is. And they practice the old ways. But somehow, Mother Tyler who was the head of the coven, gave leadership of the coven over to Stahl, just cause, for the lols, I guess. (laughs) Except she doesn't even say that they had that connection at any time. She doesn't even refer to him at any point in the story, which is kind of odd. Yeah, the mechanics of the occult leadership were, I thought, best unexamined. Yeah. I didn't think I was going to be able to organize a timeline or flowchart. Yeah, we don't expect them to have their coven meetings according to Robert's Rules of Order, <laughs> but it would be nice yeah. to have an org chart somewhere to let us know who's the CEO and who's technical officer and all that goings on. Well, what we have instead is some first-rate insults that were my favorite part of the book. And once again, I just made a childlike frame of mind because I thought they were hilarious. Okay. Uh, so we've got, let's see here, uh, you Swede-bashing Cretan. And I looked this up just now in the PDF of the book because I had written down, it sounded like Swede bashing Cretan, but surely it was something else. No, it is indeed Swede bashing Cretan. It is indeed. Uh, (laughs) Loony old trout. Loony old trout? Oh, gently, Mrs. T, gently. Remember your varicose veins. (laughs) Personal favorite, old stoot. (laughs) Yes. A lot of fish in there. Uh, You must be sent by Providence. No, I was sent by the council. (laughs) And never trust a man what wears a hat. Granddad always wore one. And a wicked old devil he was, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wore a hat. Well, that's different. I gave you that hat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, then crude and mocking lout. That's, I think, the last insult I have. Yeah. Oh, she is a wonderful character. I adore Mrs. Tyler. There should be a Mrs. Tyler audio series, but of course there isn't because (laughs) she's long dead. And I love that the doctor wakes her up by annoying her out of a coma with his offensive recipes. (laughs) 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 And by insisting on the best china, knowing that probably Jack is not going to bring out the best china for a stranger who says it has to be on the best china. Yeah, it, it that is a brilliant sequence, and I adore it. And there are plenty of sequences like that in this story. So it's kind of odd that you have this story, but you have those lovely little perky moments, like you did in Rob- Robots of Death, but Robots of Death is a somewhat stronger story mm-hmm. and holds together a lot better. I mean, you have things like, shall I kill him, Histila? No. Why not? Well, it would upset the dog, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and... Uh... I think you have an industrial relations problem yes, <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> and even Dix gets into the fun of it. He seems to love adapting Boucher because when you have the security, the head of the new security die, it's simply one line. Mitchell screamed and died. And died. <laughs> yes. And it's just brilliant. And even the scare lines are good. There are 4,000 million people on your planet. And if I'm right, within a year, there'll only be one left alive. Just one. And it's great. But you can't look at it too closely. <laughs> you're, you're talking about the, <laughs> the coven. I still don't quite know what the hell they were doing. <laughs> Yeah, it's not clear, is it? Mm -mm. Yeah, because it's not clear that Stahl knows why he's doing what he's doing, right? Yeah, not there's there's no prophecy. There's no on this night this thing is supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. I've been told there's a scroll. I read it in a book. There's nothing like that. Salt kills it dead. That's yeah. That's the extent of the lore. Yeah, it, and it's odd, too, because when he karate chops Thea <laughs> and takes her down to the basement to be transformed into the Fendal priestess. And by the way, if, <laughs> if you have a creature that is essentially death and eats all life, how does it have a priestess? Yeah. Why would anyone be alive to worship it? Well, the second story we've had in a row where one of the protagonists is involuntarily possessed to be some sort of vessel to bring the villain into full manifestation. And last time I actually, or I said I liked that it was the doctor instead of Leela, that ordinarily they would just use whatever female character was on hand. But what I expected here was that Thea would be the sacrifice. And instead she's yeah. doing the sacrificing. We, still, we do have some interesting variation. Mm -hmm. But it's, in some ways, it's much more upsetting, isn't it? Because something I really value about both the book and the original story is that both Boucher and Dix go out of their way as writers to make you care about these characters. So that when she ends up being the chosen one, when she ends up losing her humanity and becoming this alien priestess and essentially killing as many people as she can before killing the entire world, you actually kind of feel it. She's got this lovely relationship with Adam Colby. In fact, I think of them as a gay man and his fag hag. <laughs> because he seems to be played on screen anyway. There's a very gayness to him, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, and it doesn't quite come across on the page, though I think he comes across pretty well on the page as a kind of a wisecracking young man who's very ambitious and is willing to do anything to get his Nobel Prize, but he and Thea really get along quite well, so when this happens to her, it's almost a betrayal. Well, and it's almost more horrifying than instead of being possessed so that she becomes the sacrifice, she is possessed to become the destroyer, which is even darker. Yes, exactly. As a person who would never want to be, we would expect Styles to want to be the destroyer. We thought perhaps Fendelman would want to be the destroyer, but we've never seen anything about her that would indicate that she would be anything other than horrified by that. Nothing at all. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, the, the scene in the story that just kills me every time 
is when she goes to the stockroom that the doctor has been locked in, and he has since escaped. It's not as clear on screen that whether he's managed to bust down the door eventually or someone lets him out. It's been it's long been a debate among fans, but in the book, Dix makes it clear that, no, he weakened the door and it finally let go, so he's escaped. He has long gone, and she goes into that room and calls out into the darkness, are you there? Please, I need help. And you know that no help is coming. Hmm. And that just is so sad to me. If the story were made in the Pertwee era, she'd become the Fendal priestess, but then he'd come up with some clever way to bring her back to humanity. That's yeah. not going to happen here. Mm-mm. Not at all. No. There is no Dana, there is only Zul. Yes, exactly! Yes, even Ghostbusters, you get a happy ending for the person that almost destroys the planet. <laughs> but not here, and it's just Mm-mm. painful in its own way. Mm-hmm. That and Wanda Ventham is just incredible in the part, so there's that as well. What else? This is a much more fun definition of gestalt that I learned in philosophy class. <laughs> I remember finding it challenging to grasp the actual vocabulary that, like, gestalt is sort of the whole that's made up of all these different elements, like gestalt of the thought of the age is made up of all these different elements of culture and speech and influence that create this, like, man, if they had told me in class gestalt is a sort of group creature, it's made up of separate parts, when they come together they form a new and much more powerful being, I would absolutely have remembered that. (laughs) They're a megazord. (laughs) It's kind of inside out, but yes. So Gestalt thought is, oh, it's Megazord thought. Oh, well, why didn't you say so? The Megafendaline. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, that's a horrifying thought. I would complain before about Moffat on New Who, showing you a manic series of shiny and emotional events and trying to create the impression you've seen something terribly clever, but the plot mechanics don't actually make any sense. Right. Uh, we mm-hmm. have that here, and I somehow didn't mind at all. Really? So I, I felt we had a series <laughs> of images that were dark sometimes and funny other times, and they did not cohere together at all as a plot, and I was fine with it. Once again, it's just how how it hits you, what frame of mind you're in. But I, as a series of sort of dark, gothic plot points that did not make any sense together, and then uh, some light, funny banter, I did not mind that it made no sense as a story. Okay. You know, I I think that is the going consensus with the story among fans, that it doesn't make a lick of sense, but oh my god, it's fun. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's what they should have put on the back of the book. (laughs) Don't let you read aloud for us. Doesn't make a lick of sense, but oh my god, it's fun. They would have had enough room on the back cover to do it. (laughs) And then they could have put down the the last thing I have in my notes, the last quote written down, the creature slumped squashily to the floor. I love that word. (laughs) It is so evocative. I will look for ways to use it. Yes. There's some really good writing going on here as well. Terrence sticks, apart from that unfortunate line in Chapter 9... The doctor had decided things were too urgent to start playing Red Indians in the woods. Oh. I, I have to take at least half a point off for that one, because seriously, even in 1977, Christ almighty, even with that, there's some 
pretty decent writing going on, especially that ton of backstory he gives to Stahl. You get almost three quarters of a page about how Stahl came to be the way he is. And you do not get that on screen. Stahl's reveal as the bad guy is not unexpected because of who he is on screen. It comes out of nowhere on screen. Here, at least, you're like, oh, why did that happen? Oh, that's why that happened. But yeah. Other things that we want to say about this one? Other good lines like, most around here do believe, and when most believe, that do make it so, which probably explains why people still think Trump won. Well, and then yeah. the immediate retort is, well, people used to believe that the Earth was flat. Well, they acted like it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And they yeah. do indeed act like it. There's the little inclusion of saying that the reason why people throw salt over their shoulder is because of the Fendal that kind of tie into old wives' tales or things like that. Superstition. Which is awfully nice, but still, not a lick of sense. Why would you develop that as a habit? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. It, yeah, it's like, it's cute, and it, once you start thinking about it, it's like, well, no, that, hmm, hmm, what? But, yeah. 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 But that's true of so many Doctor Who stories that are fun to watch or to read, isn't it? Well, in terms of uh, ancient occult mythology, I think it's interesting in the photo you sent us of the priestess that it's uh, like a distinctly Minoan style of oh, yeah. portraying the eyes. So that was an interesting direction to go with it as, as sort of an ancient evil. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to link back to anything in the story. No, it's just this, you know, this Greco garb, uh, Minoan eyes, very different centuries. But once again, an interesting impression that I didn't have when I was reading it because I wasn't seeing the costumes, but it doesn't actually add up to anything more thought provoking. Just a, just a nice use of familiar imagery. Everything in this story yeah. is something we've seen before, something we've read before. And yet somehow it felt sort of fresh and dark, even though there's... Zero original content, so far as I can tell. And you're absolutely right. Yeah, the bit with the eyes just reminded me of Medusa. <laughs> you know, don't look into the eyes, you'll turn to stone. Especially with the serpentine, Fendaline creatures. I did I did find it interesting that the reason that people couldn't move is because they had te like a telepathic control. Mm -hmm. So they were able to actually keep people from getting away like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's literally been bred into them somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting because it also reveals the origins of the story. I, I didn't say it in the intro because I completely forgot to, but the origins of the story, because almost all of the Hinchcliffe Holmes gothic horrors are based on previous horror movies. This one's mm -hmm. based on, of all things, Quatermass in the Pit. And I'm not sure if either of you have seen that or heard of it, mm -mm. but it no. is... All right. A little potted history here, really quickly. Nigel Neal in the 1950s wrote a trilogy of science fiction horror television serials for the BBC called Quatermass, Quatermass 2, and Quatermass in the Pit. And they were ratings hits for the BBC. In fact, you could even say there would not be Doctor Who had it not been for Quatermass. Even though Nigel Neal, when he was alive, hated hearing that because he hated Doctor Who. Fast forward to the 60s. They had made big budget movie versions. The first two movies, not so great. Hammer got hold of Quatermass in the Pit and did an amazing version in the 1960s. And the plot, the basic plot is this. 
they find what they think is an unexploded bomb. It's in an area of London where there has always been a reputation for hauntings and for ghosts and for strange happenings. Come to find out, it's a Martian spacecraft. And the Martians have been ferrying back and forth between Mars and Earth, changing our genetics so that we evolved into more intelligent creatures, but more intelligent creatures that they could control. The upshot of the whole thing, and I've given the whole plot away, but you should still watch it because it's amazing, is that we are the Martians. And it's creepy as fuck. <laughs> and this story seems to capture the creepy as fuck part without necessarily getting all the <laughs> details right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything else we would like to say about this one? There is a kind of a tie-in to Ghosts of In Space. Yeah. Where the Doctor mentions that a weakness in uh, time and space allows places to be haunted. Yeah. Or most places that have a weakness in the fabric of time and space are haunted. And I couldn't remember the name of it when I was reading, but then I looked back and you had mentioned that in the notes. And I was like, yeah, it does kind of echo back yeah. to that. Even though it couldn't possibly because it's echoing forward to it. <laughs> right. But it's a good reference, and it makes me wonder if something as small as that little inclusion in here is something that inspired Ghosts of In Space, or that idea to be brought back. I can almost guarantee that it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost certain that Barry Letts, having done The Demons, which does exactly the same plot as this, essentially, mm -hmm. and... His considering that one of his favorite stories probably would not look at something produced during Tom Baker's era and think, oh, I'll have bits of that for my story. But it is a <laughs> nice little bit of, yeah, it has a nice little bit of synchronicity, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's nice to think of it as part of the same continuity, even though it couldn't possibly be. But yeah, it's definitely there. So, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's go good reading. Let's do that, as we always do. Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews, the book written by other readers, and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. In fact, it's almost expected that you will. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.48, which is a bit higher than the previous book, which isn't all that hard to do. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, guys, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Michael gives this book three stars and says, One of my favorite stories from this season, and yet the Target novel doesn't really move the needle much either way. Pretty much what you see on screen is what you get on the page adaptation of Dick's. Part of me wishes he'd had the time or inclination to delve a bit more into the characters and the history of the Fendal, but alas, that wasn't to be. Which is true. He doesn't do... He doesn't give a much backstory at all, except for Stahl, and that's because he kind of has to. Also in our Goodreads group, our Patreon Dave Davis also gives this three stars and says, My memory of the story on TV is that the production values were awful. I don't know why I thought that. Upon rewatching, they were pretty good. 
with only one scene of the lone Fendeline in the hallway inducing a slight cringe. Yeah, the first reveal is kind of not impressive. I reread this book before rewatching the episodes and probably enjoyed it better for doing so. Had I watched the episodes first, I think it would have shown the book to be lackluster. Dix does add to the story, such as in the opening scene giving the doomed hitchhiker more to think about than just being scared in a vague hammer horror kind of way, which is so effective on screen but would have been dull on the page. All in all, I enjoyed the book, despite it not being Terrence Dick's best effort. For all the producer Graham Williams has brought in to rein back the gruesome stories and make the show more kitty-friendly, this story in print and on screen is as creepy as Doctor Who gets. It being the last script to be commissioned by Robert Holmes might be the reason for that, and virtually no canine, as the script had already been written when the decision to keep the tin dog was made. And finally, Otherworld, and that's spelled W-Y-R-L-D, gives it two stars and says, as a horror story involving ancient skulls, monsters that can eat whole planets, a coven of witches, and at least one mad scientist, this should have been a thrilling story. Instead, I found it so boring that I kept putting it down to read something else. It took me nearly a week to read a 110-page book. I think the problem with the story is that it's a bit too convoluted, with too many disparate elements to fit together well. Unusually, author Taron Sticks fails to adequately describe what's probably a very visual story. I don't have any clear memories of watching the episodes. This was a story that needed a lot more descriptive elements to make it really stand out, and the page length just didn't run to it. In terms of characterization, both the Doctor and Leela are handled well here, though to be honest, it would be difficult to get such a simple character as Leela wrong. You could be surprised. All you have to do is threaten everyone with a knife, totally fail to understand anything the doctor says, and think that everything is magic, and away you go. Aw, that's not fair. Aw. The guest characters are all stock stereotypes, power-mad scientist, old wise witch, and her country bumpkin grandson, weak-willed damsel in distress that's taken over by the monster, and so on. The pagan elements are interesting, but probably work rather less well in the English countryside than they would have on, say, a remote Scottish island. So all in all, not the best Doctor Who story around. Hmm. Interesting, that. Hmm. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this book? Um, I, I would say three, 3.25. Yeah, it definitely has some issues going on with the plot that, you know, if you look too hard at it don't make sense but it was a fun story it had a lot of good atmospherics i really enjoyed leela and the doctor in it there were yeah too too many secondary characters the granny being the best of them <laughs> the, <laughs> the only one i really remember much about the writing's not too bad terrence six seems to enjoy this a little bit um he, he didn't go all the way to flesh it out a ton because it's still a pretty lean book but uh yeah it was enjoyable so i'd say 3.25 okay and allison previously a full three quarters of, of a point from my score were attributable to meeker and this time three quarters to 1.25 points will be attributable to granny tyler <laughs> any conversation she's involved with her side and the other side of it so i'm gonna go uh, 2.75 there there are books that we have target books we have read that have really challenged us in terms of you know what is society what is it to be human what might the future look like this is not one of those books um, this is 
This is a ride on the teacups at uh, Disney World, and I loved the teacups. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I enjoyed uh, the, the dark atmospherics. I enjoy the humor. I'm uh, immensely enjoying the Louise Jameson experience, and I still have to have not seen one of these episodes, which I know is, is, is a weird way to make a fan. Uh, but I'm, in, I'm enjoying that. Leela is the, the favorite character, uh, companion that I've read so far. And I'm really enjoying the voice performance on the, the audible versions that I'm hearing as well. So 2.75. Alrighty. And as for me, I'm going to split the difference between the two of you and go with most of the people from Goodreads and say a three. This book has some good going on in it. It has a really decent script to work with. Karen Stix is having fun with the wordplay, but he's not doing much more than what's on screen. It does adapt what happens on screen admirably, and in fact, it even papers over some problems, such as that infamous scene where nobody knows if Tom Baker was let out of the cupboard or not, simply because of the way it was shot, so oddly. <laughs> at least here we know for sure Who that, let no. the dark out? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, thank you for that. Now that's going to be running through my head for the next five years. And those are good things, but it doesn't do a lot more than that. The backstory for Stahl is welcome, but I really would have loved a lot more backstory about the Fendal and why the Time Lords did what they did. But if it's not on the page, if it's not in the script at this point in Terrence Dick's career, it's not going to be on the page either. So good, fun experience, both on screen and on the page, but yeah, so three stars. Well, thank you all, mm -hmm. and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we welcome back Jenny Ingersoll as we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of The Sunmakers. Mm. And after that, we will have our 100th episode, which will be a joint podcast with our good friend, Larry Van Mersbergen, uh, Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all words with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all this fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.